Hi, welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Let me get my emotional support cat. Okay. <laughs> to be quiet and keep the kids quiet, since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children. Gertrude's daughter even got to join in on what they considered fun. Tell us about the giant turtle. Alan never showed up, nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. This is episode 39. Uh, 39. This show's almost as old as we are by episode numbers. Correct. But anyhow, nothing fun because we're kind of boring. Yep. We had our fun a couple weeks ago, yeah. which you guys heard about. Yeah, which I would love to go there again. I know you would. Oh, so I would you. go again. You Would you go in the basement now knowing what's in there now? Yeah. Well, I'd hope so. Because we already ripped the Band-Aid off, so there's no point in not going. Yeah, that was a hardcore Band-Aid. That was, like, not even a Band-Aid. That was fucking wax on leg hair. That so, rips much harder. <laughs> <laughs> but with that also said, since that episode has been released, I did get a message from one of the participants that was there that night. Um, she just wanted me to put it out there that... She did not intentionally kick the caskets that we may have made it so like we did say. Um, what she wanted everybody to know was that she actually bumped into it, not actually kicked it. Like, I'm pretty sure that's how I worded it. I don't remember. That was two weeks ago. Yeah, we said it. kicked, but we didn't mean it as in, like, just walked up to it and kicked it. Oh, yeah. Well, there was no malicious intent behind no. the nudge. What she wanted everybody to know was is that she didn't actually kick this casket. It was... A bump into it, like we said. Uh, the staff that she was on the tour with asked them all to come forward to take pictures, and she bumped it with her foot because there was no lighting down in that basement, and all I had was the light from the staff member's phone to see what was on down there while they were on the tour. Yeah. So, don't want to try and put out anybody in a negative light other than the dipshits we cover, you know, in true crime cases. Correct. You know, we're going to paint that bright red negative light on them as much as we can with the facts that are available to us. So yep. if, you, if you ever interact with us in person or whatever and we put you on a bad light, don't be afraid to message Sarah and I. We'll correct ourselves. We'll, we'll right our wrongs. Yes. But with that said, what do you have for us this week, Sarah? Oh, I'm going back to my roots and doing philosophy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> now I'm doing... A true crime case. A couple. Okay. Not a couple of cases, but a couple. A couple. As in... A dating couple. Married. Married, yeah. dating, whatever. Yes. What are you doing? I'm going back to my roots, the underwater basket weaving. <laughs> you fucking threw me. I didn't even know what to say. <laughs> underwater basket weaving. Where did you pull that from? I don't know. But Your ass, apparently. Yeah, apparently. And the thing is... I'm sure Sarah could be like, how the fuck did you say that with such a straight face? Clearly. <laughs> Even though you guys can't see us. So, no, I'm going to throw you for an actual loop. I'm doing somewhat of a true crime case as well this what? week. Yeah. Taking yeah. over my shit, huh? No. This time I decided I hadn't figured I hadn't done one since May with Bath Township. It was time for me to do another one. Yeah. But, you know, this isn't as intense as most true crime cases I covered. <laughs> yeah. But it's still a little, holy kind of, it's still a little bit of holy crap, so. Holy crap, but just a little bit. Yeah, this case was kind of inspired by events that's been going on recently. So it's like holy shark and not a full holy crap. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. So with that said, you already want to get started? Uh, I guess. I guess, okay. <laughs> that's it, everybody. I guess we're done for the day, too. <laughs> no, no, I'll go now. All right. So it's about, um... Shelly and David Notek. Okay. I'm, have you ever heard of them? Nope. Okay, cool. I hadn't either until I found their story and I was like, ugh. Bitch. Okay, you ready? All right. For real this time? Yeah. In April 1982, David Notek was out and about and in a chance encounter while living in Raymond, Washington, he met a girl named Shelly. Her name is Michelle, but she goes by Shelly, so I'm just going to call her Shelly. Okay. David claimed that Shelley was the most beautiful girl he had ever seen in his entire life. She was a young, charismatic, single mom of two daughters with two divorces under her belt. And a history of a rather tragic childhood, which mostly came from her own doing. Okay. 
The couple got married in 1987 and had a daughter, Tori, together in 1989. So they didn't waste much time once they were married. I guess not. David was a good father to Shelley's two daughters, his stepdaughters. Uh, he loved them like they were his own, and he worked really hard so that they could have everything they wanted. Whereas Shelley was a typical stay-at-home mom, and while David was off working every day, you know, to be the breadwinner of the home, he worked construction. You know, that's a lot of long days, a mm -hmm. lot of hard labor. Yep, long days and whatever the weather is outside. Yeah, and this is Washington, so you got to imagine it's a lot of cold, rainy days. Yep, and then a lot of smoke and then... August. Yeah. Well, yeah. In 1989, probably not so much. No, from what I understand from listening to Zach and Monique on their shows on Skycast, they that live in the Spokane area, they call it smogest up there. Smogest? Yeah. Oh. Because of all the fire smoke, wildfire smokes that come down at that time of year up that way. But now, but back in 1989, it might not have been that way. Uh, maybe. But before he met Shelley and was doing construction, he had spent years serving in the Navy. So this dude was just an all-around hard worker. And the Notex seemed like an everyday run-of-the-mill family. They seemed happy to everyone outside of their home. But inside their home was a story, a different story entirely. Okay. So inside the home, and very quickly after their wedding, Shelley began to physically and verbally abuse her husband, David. And he never stood up to her. Not once. He just, mm, fuck it. Let it happen. So if I was to abuse you, just, you know, for shits and giggles, I guess, would you not put a stop to me or Absolutely like tell me not. to get the fuck and out? You already know what the rest of my family wants to come to light. Do you think they're going to let that happen? Oh, hell no. No. But so I'm like, why, why, why would this dude, grown dude, I don't know. just let his wife abuse him? Anyways. I don't know if she had like some kind of golden vagina that he's like, it's fucking worth staying for. Kind of like shit. She'll be oh. the death of me, but I'm kind of like, inside that pushy. Kind of like Catherine McKnight's ex-husband that she killed. He said he like was verbally and physically abused by her, but he stayed because he said the sex was great. That's a fucking stupid man right there. Eh, well, if you never heard that story, he kind of got a surprise ending. Yeah, that was way off topic. <laughs> Sadly, it wasn't only David that was being abused by Shelley. Damn near all of the abuse inflicted in that house was done to her own daughters. Shelley was known to wake her oldest daughter, Nikki, up in the middle of the night by holding a pillow over her face trying to suffocate her. And then she would turn around and console Nikki and be like, it was just a bad dream. Nobody's trying to suffocate you. Nobody's in here trying to suffocate you. Yeah, okay. It's like that video I've sent you before where the chick slaps her dude across the face and then consoles him like, oh, no. No, oh, like from the like the. Yeah, from like the 40s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like bigger man's piece where she slaps him, wakes him up and then consoles him. What the fuck's wrong with you? Anyways, David, as well as their children, were often beaten with whatever was laying around the house that Shelley thought could inflict pain. She would often lock them in closets, lock them outside of the house, and force them to sleep outside, even if they were terrified to be outside in the dark. She did this for the smallest of punishments, and most of the time her children didn't even know why they were being punished in the first place. Nikki was the one that got most of the abuse. She was thrown into walls. At one point, Shelley had grabbed her daughter's head and shoved her head through a window, and then was like, do you see what you made me do? And then, of course, didn't take her to the doctor that, you know, she needed to go to clearly because she had bone visible from a cut to her head. No. Nikki was punched and beaten with a phone cord. And those fucking things hurt. No. You ever been snapped with a phone cord? Probably a long time ago, obviously, because they don't exist anymore. I'm sure you could probably do that with one of those, like, six-foot chargers you buy at the gas station. Yeah. But I'm talking, like, spiral phone right, cord. Right, that's what you meant. Nikki had to learn to save face while out in public, and she began to hide her bruises from the world by wearing, like, tights or leggings under her skirts and long sleeve shirts. She didn't want anyone asking her questions or having, you know, suspicions raised about what could be going in the no tech going on in the no tech home. Nikki would wind up growing up and leaving the house for good, which sadly made her two younger sisters the targets. So Sammy is the middle daughter, 
Tori is the youngest. And I think there was a pretty good age gap between Sammy and Tori, like 10 years probably, if not more. So with the two youngest no-tech children in the home without their bigger sister taking the brunt of it, again, like I said, they, they became the targets. They were restricted from using the bathroom and shower. They literally had to beg Shelly permission to go in and use the toilet or take a shower. And oftentimes that led to accidents happening and being unable to wash yourself Mm -hmm. for so long. Uh, You know, you can imagine that's going to smell. Right. Especially if you're having accidents on yourself. You know, this caused extreme embarrassment at school and the alienation it caused from their peers was enough to make anyone wish they were dead. Like, I, I remember kids when I was in school that came in there was one in particular that would come in and smell like kind of like rotten cabbage. And like nobody talked to them. So you can imagine it was probably pretty bad. Right. I'm sure every school had at least one one or two kids that were like that because I know we had one. Yeah. However, the worst of the abuse was given to anyone that became a guest in their home after an invitation to stay from Shelley. In 1988, Shelley's 13-year-old nephew, Shane Watson, came to the Notex home to live. Shane's dad was not able to do much rearing of his own child because he was in and out of prison due to biker gang activity. Shane's mom was a drug addict who was perpetually just struggling with her substance abuse. Shelly had sent Shane numerous letters full of love and telling him if he ever needed to that he could come and stay with his aunt Shelly. Even with two absentee parents, Shane immediately knew that when he entered the no-tech home that he had walked into another form of hell. Shane would quickly become the newest target of abuse. Shelly tortured Shane the same way that she tortured her own daughters. And she did this with a punishment that she called wallowing. Care to take a guess what that would be? Mm, Not an idea. Okay, so her form of punishment that she called wallowing was forcing her daughters and Shane to lay in a mud puddle at night while she poured like ice cold water on them while they were naked laying in a mud puddle. Shelly's girls were also sometimes locked up in dog cages and chicken coops while she dumped that ice cold water on them. Shelly often forced her daughters to cut their pubic hair and hand it to her in her hand as a form of humiliation. She made hers and David's daughter, Nikki, dance naked with Shane while Shane was naked as well. Each time Shelly would abuse her girls and Shane, she would like later on love bomb the fuck out of them. Do you know what that is? Love bomb? Not really. So it's like being overly affectionate and doing doing niceties, basically, uh, to show that you love somebody, I guess is the best way I can explain it. Yeah. Being over the top with it. But that's what she did to keep them under her thumb so that she could stay in control and they would continue to just allow it. She was the ultimate master manipulator that seemingly got off on her own power and the controlled she could force upon those around her. The Notex opened their home again to an outsider the same year that Shane moved in with them. This time it was one of Shelley's friends named Kathy Kathy Lorino. Lorino? Kathy had lost her job and was down and out on luck, so she turned to her friend Shelley. In the very beginning of Kathy staying in the Notex home, Shelly loved Bomb Herm like she had everyone else. Unfortunately for Kathy, she chose the wrong person to turn to and be uplifted by, as she would not be safe from the abuse that Shelly doled out. Six years after opening their home to guests, the Notex would become murderers. Kathy Loreno had lost 100 pounds while being abused and performing laborious tasks while naked for Shelly. She was forced to sleep next to the boiler in the basement. David had also had a hand in Kathy's abuse. He basically made like a DIY board waterboarding equipment okay. to use on her. He would duct tape Kathy's arms and legs together so that uh, he could pour bleach into the open wounds on her body. The Notex forced Kathy to drink smoothies made from rotten food and to eat cups of salt. Cups of salt. Yeah. Yeah. And doing saltwater rinses from, like, the dentist's office is bad enough. Ooh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure a rotten smoothie is even worse, but still. Yeah. Kathy had deteriorated so quickly that it was difficult for her to stand and walk. Keeping her balance was something that just wasn't doable for her anymore. 
Cognitively, she declined as well as the closer she came to death, the more she was not able to respond and didn't seem to know her surroundings or who who she was with. Yeah. Shelly, being the manipulator that she was, explained to her children and nephew that what she was doing was to keep Kathy safe. After that, she began forcing the children to help her abuse Kathy. They became desensitized and easily turned a blind eye to keep themselves out of harm's way. And out of harm's way is referring to Shelly. Yeah. So basically, the kids were letting Kathy take the brunt of it so that they didn't have to. Kathy suffered years of abuse, torture, and humiliation before suffering to an end at the age of 36 in 1994. She died while being locked inside of the laundry room of the Notex home. David claimed Kathy choked on her own puke. And that is the reason she died. Nothing that they did, you know, the bleach and the wounds, none of that had any any bearing on how yeah, she died. Okay. He stated that they never took Kathy to a hospital because it would implicate them in her death if her death happened to be investigated. Instead, they went a whole different direction. They burned Kathy's body in their backyard and then scattered her ashes into the Pacific. Anyone who asked what happened to Kathy, the couple would tell them she ran off to live with the man she met named Rocky, and they hadn't heard from her since. Yeah, so she didn't die she disappeared, according to them. And, you know, that's how she showed up in the newspaper, was as a missing person. Shane was said to have disappeared not long after Kathy did. But with Shelley's daughter speaking out against their parents later on, uh, the, truth, the truth came out. Shane had come to Nikki one night and showed her pictures that he had been taking pictures of Kathy. He had in pictures documented the entire the entire experience that Kathy had before her death. He photographed her bruises, her extreme weight loss, the teeth that had fallen out of her face. He took a lot of pictures of Kathy like just days prior to her dying mm-hmm. um, that showed how terrible she looked because of Shelley and David. Shane had told Nikki his plan to show the pictures to the police. Unfortunately, stating this did him no good, as Shelley had told her family that it, that if anyone ever found out what happened to Kathy, all of them would go to prison, including her kids. So out of fear of going to prison, Nikki wound up telling her, her parents that Shane had all those pictures. The children never spoke to this about anybody. Um, and with Shane having proof, photo proof at that, and saying he was taking it to the police, like I said, Nikki went and told her mom, Shelly, about Shane's new photography habit and its intended audience. What do you think happened to Shane? So, what happened? Not sure. Just days after finding out that Shane had pictures, Shelly demanded that David shoot Shane in the head. And he did. And they then cremated his body in their backyard and scattered the ashes, just like they did with Kathy. In 2001, Shelley invited another guest into their home. David was away working like 160 miles from their home. So she invited this person in on her own. This was all Shelley. Yeah. This time it was a man by the name of Ron Woodworth. He was 57 years old and had a substance abuse problem. And just as with the others, upon his arrival into the home, he was treated very well. But that soon stopped. Ron wasn't allowed to use the bathroom in the no-tech home, therefore Shelley often forced him to piss in a cup and drink his own urine because she didn't want him using the bathroom. At one point, Shelley repeatedly made him jump off of the roof of their second or their two-story home and lay in agony on top of a bed of gravel. The cuts he sustained to his feet from jumping down onto the gravel were treated with boiling water and bleach. The youngest daughter, Tori, stated later on that it always smelled like bleach and decomposing flesh, like it was burning his skin right off of his body, and that he smelled that way all the time. Shelley was forcing him to take every drug she had in the house, and like Kathy, Ron began to deteriorate. He too had lost a ton of weight, and his teeth fell out. In August of 2003, 
when Ron succumbed to the torture and mistreatment and most likely severe infection in his feet. His dead body was then stored in Shelley's deep freezer until David returned from working out of town to take care of his body. To the detriment of Shelley, there was a burn ban happening, so there was no way that they could burn Ron's body. Instead, she forced David to bury the body in the backyard. The same week that Ron passed away and David buried his body, the Notech daughters had reunited at Nikki's Seattle home. Before the youngest, Tori, had gone to Seattle, her sisters had told her to collect some of Ron's things and bring them with her when she went out there, and she did that. Once they were all together and looked over the evidence that Tori brought with her, they talked and came to a consensus that they were going to turn their parents in. Especially now that they had physical proof. Right, because I'm like thinking this whole time, when the fuck is this fucking bitch going to finally get caught? Because like, we've got pictures like, oh, here it comes. Nope. <laughs> in 2003, police showed up at the NoTech home in Washington and supplied a search warrant. They began digging and found Ron Woodworth's body in the backyard. Both David and Shelley were arrested on August 8th of the same year and basically sat in, in jail until they were tried. Five months after the arrest, David confessed to the police that he shot and killed Shelley's nephew, Shane. He also confessed to burying Ron. On August 27th, 2004, David was found guilty of first-degree murder for the murder of 13-year-old Shane Watson, as well as criminal assistance and unlawful disposal of human remains. He was sentenced to 15 years at the Monroe Correctional Complex, though he only served 13 of the, the 15 he was supposed to serve. And he was paroled in 2016, so he's out and free. Shelley was found guilty and charged with two counts of first-degree murder for the murders of Kathy Loreno and Ron Woodworth. She was sentenced to 22 years in prison at the Washington Corrections Center for Women. She tried appealing her convictions, but was denied by the Washington Court of Appeals. Because who in their right mind would just let her fucking walk? Right. She served 18 of her 22-year sentence and was released on November 8th last year. 2022. So that bitch is free. Just walking around. Yeah. They both are. Yeah. Well, I'm more so her. Yeah. With Tori being the youngest and still a minor, the middle sister, Sammy, was granted custody while their parents were in prison. All three no-tech children have moved on with their lives. They're now in their 30s and 40s. Nikki and Sammy both live in the Seattle area. Tori, however, wanted a fresh start and moved to Colorado, where she still lives today. Nikki works with her husband's landscaping company, and Sammy is a teacher. And Tori has a job in social media in Colorado. It didn't, you know, I couldn't find out what type of social media job she has, yeah. but tis what she's doing. Sammy and Nikki are both married and each have three children of their own. And Sammy has stated that she will never reopen herself or her life back up to her mother. Good, which none of them should. She said that if she was, if her mother was to appear at her doorstep and knock on her door, that she knows that she would basically lock herself in a room and cower in the corner while calling or attempting to call the police. Yeah. Like, she has no interest. She has no interest in rekindling a relationship with her mother. I can mother. only imagine why that is. Yeah. The two youngest, Tori and Sammy have said that they have forgiven David when he reached out and asked them for forgiveness. Nikki said she will not because the amount of years that they endured the abuse was unforgivable. While David didn't inflict the abuse on them personally, he was so meek and timid that he never tried to stop his wife. No backbone, just just a weak man. Yeah. All three daughters have said they didn't have concerns for themselves being hurt when their mom got released, but instead their concerns were for others, and they felt it was their duty to expose their mom's true nature as a predator. So yeah, that's it. She gave me, this bitch gave me a little bit of like Sylvia Likens vibes. Yeah. The hell was her name? I don't remember. Gertrude. Ber Gertrude Banaszewski. That's who she reminded me of. And I think that's why when I read their story, I was like, that's the one I'm doing this week. Because it's kind of along the same shit. 
you know, she took somebody in. Granted, it was, you know, her own flesh and blood, but still didn't fare well for that kid. Nope. But yeah, that was a little bit about uh, David and Shelley Notek. Fucked up couple. Yeah. I still don't understand why people do shit like that. No. Or can be that fucking weak to not stand up for themselves and their children and take orders from their their woman. Right. Their spouse. Doesn't even have to be woman. Mm-hmm. And just go along with shooting a 13-year-old in the head. Come on. Right. Ugh. Fucking bitch. Anyways, yeah. what do you have for us? Like I said, I going back to my roots of doing the underwater basket weaving, so we can give everybody a online, well not an online tutorial, a audio tutorial on that. Okay. Not really. Okay. <laughs> like I said, I have true crime stuff that was kind of inspired by a recent event lately in the news. A recent event, you mm-hmm. say? Yeah. Can you share what that was? Yeah, or? it's the United Auto Workers strike. Oh, okay. You know, and this is probably going to be one of the most significant strikes in our fucking lifetime that's ever going to happen, because I don't want to recall it happening like this Mm-mm. with them. Maybe like one of them, but not the fucking big of three of them, yeah. you know. Yep. So so not really bright and shiny this week, but My bright and shiny is that Ginger is pacing back and forth trying to find a way to jump back down into your lap. Yeah. <laughs> Just watching it. You gotta imagine she's like almost twenty years old. Has no claws front or back, which we didn't do that by the way, before no. someone comes at us about it. My family did that. Not them themselves, but they, you know, right. paid a professional to do that. It was not my choice. I know. But, yeah. It's it's just funny to see. Because she's like halfway sliding and then she stands back up. Anyways, off topic. Yeah, we've done that quite a bit. Let's, let's, let's continue on with the underwater basket weaving. <laughs> okay, even though it's not really underwater I know. basket weaving. I changed. I actually changed up what I was going to do this week. I originally handed it. Playing a goofy-ass drug fad from the 1960s. Which you should still do at some point. I'm going to. But with so many strikes happening this year with labor unions, I had this story come across my newsfeed like months ago, and I mm-hmm. decided I'm doing it this week. Like, just a couple of weeks ago, you know, our scare and our stressed-out feelings of a possible strike happening yeah. ended shortly before we recorded this episode with my Thankfully. union at my work. Yeah. You know, thankfully, we didn't go on strike either because that was going to be a fucking scary time for both of us. Yeah. Like, you don't really think about it affecting you until... It's right at your front door. Correct. And, yeah, I was... I told you, like, that terrified me. Anyways. Most of us probably know what labor unions are and what they stand for, even though when they were first created, what they fought for are now laws, but now witnessing firsthand what they can do, they are still very important today. With the unions of the past, what they did end up bringing is an end to child labor, safer working conditions, reasonable hours. Like before labor unions, people had to work up to like 100 hours a week. Holy shit. You would never be home. Yeah, that's what a lot of labor unions fought for, which are now federal laws today. Uh, Health benefits and even higher wages. Hmm. Everything but like higher wages are now basically lost by the federal labor board. Right. One of the earliest recorded strikes was in 1768 by New York journeyman tailors in protest of wage reductions that they ended up getting put on them, so they had their wages cut. Even though the history of labor unions can be its own episode and some of the riots from their strikes, there is one strike incident that I've had seen months before this episode. In September 1970, Johnny Galt, a 48-year-old contract engineer laid off from General Electric, thought, you know what a contract engineer is? No. So he's contracted out to do his to work on a specific task. Okay. For the most part, we have them at my work all the time. They'll be there for so long, finish their project, come be gone, and usually if they do well enough, they'll come back for another project they want them to work on. Okay, so they're kind of like an at, at will. Yeah, kind of person. They're there if they're needed. So with. Like I said, with the layoffs of General Electric and him without having worked for an unknown amount of times and needed to provide for his wife and his four children, John ended up taking a trucking job with Tri-State Motors Trucking based out of Joplin, Missouri. And Tri-State Motors specialized in moving dynamite and radioactive materials. But at this time, as he took this job, local Teamsters 823 is on strike with Tri-State Motors Trucking. So this job... That John has taken as a replacement driver or a scab driver since he had crossed the picket lines of the Teamsters. 
During their strike, a fourth of the drivers of Tri-State Motors Trucking were on the picket lines. Even though John was an engineer, he also drove truck frequently in between his engineering contracts and had logged 2 million accident-free miles before taking on this job with Tri-State Motors Trucking. Damn. But unhappy with the replacement drivers, Bobby Lee Schuler and Gerald Lee Bowden became angry with their jobs being taken over by replacement drivers and wanted to intimidate... I put intimate for some fucking reason. <laughs> they so in- that's where lot lizards came from. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. All right. So they wanted to intimidate and dissuade the new drivers for making their runs. Soon after the strike started, Schuler and Bowden would take shots at Tri-State Motor Truck squirrels to hit the radiators behind to disable the trucks from completing their runs. So you're probably wondering at this point, how did they be able to take these shots at these trucks and not hit any other cars, right? Yeah. So... With their uh, Tri-State Motors trucking, if they were moving dangerous cargo like radioactive material or dynamite, for example, they would move them at night when there was less traffic on the highways. Oh, that's... I mean... That makes sense. Yeah. More people are up during the day. Yeah. You don't want high volatile cargo like that on the roads when normal people are out. So they would drive these dynamite-carrying trucks... After dark, at late at night, when the highways were basically empty. Yeah. So, on September 30th, John Galt is preparing to make his first run with Tri-State Motors Trucking, bound for a mining operation in Boss, Missouri, with another driver named Norman Hopkins ahead of him. My best guess as to this is why, it being John's first run, where they had a similar destination, so they traveled together down I-44. Earlier that night, Schuler and Bowden had attended a party... With along with Gerald Bowden's wife Sharon, along with one of their also their friends Lenora Kimmel, before they would leave for this party, Schuler grabs his rifle, which was originally concealed inside of a blanket, and puts it in Lenora Kimmel's car. With the groups heading to Springfield, Missouri, they by chance come across a t- Tri-State motor truck on I-65, going the opposite direction. Schuler would tell Lenora to turn around and to then get ahead of this truck. After overtaking this truck, Bobby Schuler would lean out of the passenger side, taking two shots at the truck's radiator and disabling this truck as they head on down the interstate to the next exit to escape. So what he's doing is he's shooting at the radiator with this 30-30 caliber rifle, which is used mostly in deer hunting and other medium to large size game animals. Okay. So he's shooting the radiator, causing it to overheat to pull the so forcing these trucks to pull over and not make it on time to their destinations, basically. Mm. Which would probably cause a penalty to the trucking company for being late. Oh, I'm sure. So these guys are union workers on strike and they're fucking with replacement drivers is what they're doing. It's like I've heard the stories with from previous union members when they struck at my place of work in like the uppers of the union messing with certain people. Like just getting in the way of trucks kind of making deliveries, just being, you know, harassing people and whatnot. Just being assholes. For the most part, yeah. yeah. But I understand why they were doing it. I get why they were doing it with lately with how things have been at my job. Mm-hmm. You know, like if one of them told me about, he said it was one of the higher ups of the union that's not there, but was there in support. Fucking smashed out a window of somebody's fucking car at one strike he was at. And back in the like 80s or 90s, I mean... Most people don't do that shit now, but they were fucking ruthless back then. I guess. Shit. Sounds like a lawsuit waiting to happen. Well, lawsuits weren't nearly as prevalent as they are today. It, if it happened today. No, yeah, I'm sure. There 100% be a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Around 1 a.m., the four come across two more Tri-State Motor trucks on I-44. These are the two trucks of John Galt and Norman Hopkins. Hopkins still leading Galt on their run, just like before, Bobby would tell Lorena to get off at the next exit to turn around, which she did. Now, with this adrenaline rushing as they finally caught up to these two trucks and overtaking them, they missed a very important detail on one of these two trucks. The detail is the reflective orange placards with four-inch letters that say explosives in bold lettering. Instead of taking his shots, Bobby had to use the bathroom and tells Lorena that he needs to relieve himself and then would pull off on the next exit ramp farther ahead of the trucks mm-hmm. at this point. So after Bobby was done going to the bathroom and knowing that the trucks are approaching, he would grab his rifle once again from Lorena's car and, like before, take two shots at the first truck that was being driven by Norman Hopkins 
And hearing these shots, Hopkins flashes brake lights to gulp behind him to alert him that something's going on. I'm not sure why there was no use of CB radios between the two of them. Mm-hmm. It could be something to do with standard practices with trucks carrying explosive being radios that being intrinsically safe to cause a spark and possibly mm-hmm. cause the dynamite to explode. Maybe. Not sure. I tried looking into it, but I couldn't find anything. Even after getting these two shots from taking into his truck, Hopkins was still able to carry on and keep going, so he never must have not hit his radiator. Now, fueled by this anger that his shots didn't take this truck out, Galt is now approaching the the four people off the side of the road as well, so Bobby Schuller would take another shot, his another two shots, and a third shot to make sure this truck doesn't escape. And on this third shot, would cause the 42,800 pounds of dynamite that John Galt was carrying to explode. After the explosion that Hopkins saw in the rearview mirror, which he said it burned as bright as daylight and louder than any thunder he had ever heard in his life. He would end up crossing the meeting to stop traffic from the oncoming direction so they wouldn't go into the road. Yeah. You know, drive directly into the danger that just literally just fucking happened, yeah. burning wreckage and everything and... and everything else smart move on his part mm-hmm. now it also could have been part of their protocols that explosive trucks has another truck with them i don't know for said reasons but i tr- like looked into like dot stuff about it but there wasn't anything about that now huh. most of the resources i did use for this said john was vaporized from the explosion except for his left hand which was found 465 feet away from the crater and one of his cowboy boots still containing his foot that's all i found of him Holy shit. Vaporized. Yeah. They all described him as vaporized from the blast. So that, like, no bone, nothing. Nothing. Just That's all they found of him. Hand and his foot in a boot. That's all they, found, they ever found of him. Wow. That's insane. And this explosion did leave a crater behind the size being 50 feet wide, 70 feet long, and 25 feet deep. That's a whole ass lake. Yeah. <laughs> The only identifiable, the only identifiable parts from the truck that were able to be found other than small metal fragments and twisted metal that couldn't be identified mm-hmm. was one axle, the truck's engine, and eight feet of the frame of the truck. The rest of it was blown into small pieces, twisted up they couldn't be recognized or Holy anything shit. like that. That's insane. The concussion wave was powerful enough to damage or destroy nearby buildings, and the wave could be felt up to 16 miles away and homes and businesses were damaged as well. Cora Babcock, who lived nearby, testified in court. She was knocked out of her bed at 1.12 a.m. from the blast. Edwina Klingon from the Brookline area feared it was a rapture from how powerful it was and baptized her newborn son in her kitchen sink before it was too late. I mean, wow. something like this happens in the middle of the night and you're, if you're religious, you might think that's what's going to happen. And That had to be really fucking loud. Oh, I can only imagine how loud that much an explosion go off but the concussion wave before it that's what mm-hmm. really does all the damage do you yeah. know what the concussion wave is I'm it's talking like the about. shock wave right yes yeah shock wave concussion wave same thing once more i've never fancy. heard of it as a concussion wave concussion yes, wave is the correct is. the concussion is wave is the correct term basically this blast was actually strong enough to knock the rifle out of bobby Schuler's hands and send him to the ground, along with tearing his shirt off of his body since they were only about 300 feet away from the explosion. He didn't die? No. John Galt is the only person that was killed in this whole incident. He was only 300 feet away mm-hmm. when it happened. Yep. The shirt flew off his body. Yeah. And he was uninjured otherwise? Yeah. Well, the cuts and scrapes and stuff from him, you can see in their mug shots. Oh, okay. But other than that, no serious... In life, you know, life-threatening injuries or anything to him or the other three people he was with. Yeah. And it also shattered the windshield of Lorena Kimmel's car, which I found interesting because by 1966, was her her car was a 1966, 1966 Dodge. It didn't specify model type, mm-hmm. just manufacturing type. Because I used part of his appeal for this because it basically laid it all out in a timeline for me. So yeah. I was like, okay, I'm using this as an official court document. That it stated in there that it shattered her windshield completely. Now, windshields are laminated, which from my training in the fire service is something we needed to know. Do you know what that means for windshields? That they're laminated? Yes. No. 
So how laminated windshields are constructed, it's two pieces of glass, and there's a sheet of mylar plastic that's in between them, and then they're pressed together by high heat. Okay. So what it adheres to strengthen the glass. So, like in movies, when you see them shoot out windshields and whatnot, that's not how that really works. You can literally beat on a windshield, and you won't, it won't break apart like it does in a movie. Now, it'll only come apart as one piece, so... My time in the fire service, we would literally would have to cut a windshield out of a car if we had to. Oh, okay. So, but this explosion had enough force to shatter it because they're meant to be, they're constructed to have, be able to withstand three times their strength. And that explosion was a lot of times their strength. Yeah, and so it completely shattered it. And so the rifle that was blown out of his hand, it was found 263 feet away from where they were standing in the near the westbound lanes of I-44 because this explosion happened in the eastbound lanes. Damn. So yeah, just to give you and not you and the listeners an idea how big this explosion was and some the force that was behind it, but it's still miraculous that none of the four of them got killed. Yeah. Being that close to it from flying debris from the truck blowing up. Yeah. But it can be just like unfortunately like John that a lot of it was vaporized basically. But my guess now that instantly sober, realizing they just killed somebody, Schuler demands everyone need to get back in the car before they escape down the road, escape down the, the exit ramp that they were parked on, and start taking back roads to try and get back home before anybody notices them. But unfortunately for them, Hopkins did notice them before, you know, they killed John Galt. During their escape during the back roads, they end up getting a flat tire either prior from driving through the debris or down these back roads, didn't specify. And then uh, and continue on still driving down the rim. So being on back roads, probably dirt roads and probably pretty hard to fucking steer. And they end up losing control of their car, hitting an unknown object on a farm near a farmhouse in these back roads of Missouri. So now they're trying to traverse fucking cornfields and everything in between. And then they end up they end up finally turning themselves in after they're hearing planes flying around and dogs barking in a search for them. So I'm going to guess an explosion this large, even though this happened in 1970, like they were searching for all leads for something because they knew it was a truck from this yeah. specific same company, this, that, and the other. Something like this today now, you probably get domestic terrorism charges. Oh, yeah, for sure. During their trial... Bobby Schuler said that he didn't mean to actually harm anyone. He just wanted to stop the trucks. Also, he wasn't aware that this truck was carrying dynamite, even though he knew that 50% of Tri-State Motors Trucking's business was hauling explosives. So he knew he had basically a 50-50 shot. Right. but Of it being explosives. Right. But he was never intentionally shooting for the trailers. He was right. only shooting for the radiators to disable the trucks. Right. Bobby Lee Schuler was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 99 years for the killing of John A. Gulp, but only served eight of those years, and I couldn't find out why he was released early, but he did try to appeal his conviction on the grounds he was convicted solely under felony murder charges and not manslaughter because he wasn't trying to hurt anybody. Like he said, Either way, he intentionally took a shot at a vehicle right. with a person right. in it. That was his defense about it, but... And along with that as well, a film was used in court showing how a bullet can cause dynamite to explode, but it took up to seven shots total for it to detonate. So in the, I couldn't find the video for me to watch. But in his appeal, it did explain it. They constructed part, you know, they made up a mock-up of how this trailer was constructed and put dynamite behind it and used the same exact rifle he used for a ballistics test to show that, yes, it's possible and he also, in his defense, he said this film was during the day and he shot at night, which actually atmospheric conditions can actually have a huge difference on bullet trajectory and whatnot. Okay. So even like, once again, with my training with hazardous materials and whatnot, there's this thick ass orange book that all the trucks have on it. It's an emergency response guide that has guidelines on every chemical, like chemical family groups, basically. And yeah. it has a daytime numbers and it has nighttime numbers. For depending on whenever an incident incident would happen, so that you can tell like how it'll mm -hmm. be affected by whatever. Yep, by atmospheric conditions, wind directions, all that. You know, if it's at night, you set up your perimeter 
this many feet out compared to a smaller area during the day. Yeah. Or vice versa, depending on the chemical type. That's crazy. Yeah. To think that they... That there even has to be a book that says all that shit. I mean, for universal safety and health, like, I understand it. But to have to have it in case of, like, this type of shit... Yeah. ...is crazy to me. Yeah, and the thing is, that book is standard worldwide. There's no difference... There's no differences in it anywhere from between like here or Japan or London or everything. Everybody follows those same exact numbers. So it's it's a universal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Numbers don't change or anything. Nope. That for like on the gasoline trucks, we see those four digit numbers. Yeah. That number is assigned specifically for that chemical worldwide. Well, that's good. It keep. I mean, it keeps Mm it. Yep. Easy. The whole point of it, of the those ID numbers and whatnot. So it's universal worldwide so that number's not different somewhere else so it's 1230 is like gasoline if I remember right at the top of my head and it's 1230 on the other side of the planet is still okay. gasoline which is kind of scary if you think of people from other countries coming here and looking to fuck shit up they wouldn't they would already you can know. find that information off of google if they really wanted to can you yep well fuck me then I've done it before sitting on white nine trains and I seen one and I just google to see what it is that's true. I've been in the truck with you when you've done that. But Bobby's appeal actually was denied, though. I would like to know how he got served with 99 years and only did eight. That's what I'm... It's like, it can't be a good behavior thing, because there's no fucking way. Yeah, they're not going to take 91 years <laughs> off your sentence. Right. For good like, behavior. I tried to find it. I couldn't find why. But also, Gary Lee Bowden pled guilty to second-degree murder as well, and he was sentenced to 10 years firing on other tri-state motor trucks that day so guilty of foot by association probably charged him with the same thing but yeah. since he pleaded himself is why they probably gave him a lesser sentence but he didn't ever actually kill anybody I don't know. his wife sharon lindbowden was sentenced to time served and three years probation and she also pleaded guilty to second degree man- uh, murder but sure time served probably was because she was in the area and she didn't actually shoot, but she was there. She's still an accomplice. Yes, exactly. But also, with all that said, with Lorena Kimmel, the one driving, I couldn't find fucking anything. Nothing? No, there's no mugshots. There's nothing. Because it could be that when they turned themselves in, she actually made a phone call to her husband. Which I forgot to put this in there because she called her husband basically and wanted to come get her, get them. And that police were listening intercepted the phone call and then gave it away the location so that's probably oh could have been part of a deal who knows off the books huh. or whatever or she was just never charged in general you would at least think there'd be something if her name is out there mm-hmm. in association with this case right her name is out there you'd think there would be something right i tried to but every time i tried googling her name on anything it always popped up with all the other 17 links I had on my desktop. But nothing for this. about her. Yeah. Interesting. And also, Johnny Galt's widow did file a wrongful death suit against the Teamsters local and was awarded $220,000, which came out to be about $1.6 million today in 2023. Still doesn't bring him back, but... No. Nothing would. Right. That's but, fucked. Yeah. Now, I tried finding, I guess, when, when I was researching this, I guess there's supposed to be a memorial near the intersection where this happened. And I got on Google Maps and I couldn't find it. Like, it comes up mm-hmm. when you search his name. It, like, comes up with the Street View thing and everything. But I, like, kept clicking and clicking on Google Street View. I couldn't find anything in the area for it. Huh. One of the comments in a Facebook post I looked at to see if there was any information somebody could share. People said you can still see parts of the crater because of the ground has settled over time. Yeah. And I looked, the, once again, on Street View. I couldn't find it, but... Google cars going at 60, 70 miles an hour, you're probably not going to really notice it in a picture. Yeah. Except for, uh, like, being there. And you don't want to know where, where it is. You have to know where it is to look for it, too. Right. Well, yeah, that's it. I just found that as... That's crazy. Kind all of... The, all that because they're, they're on strike mm-hmm. and somebody took their place to do a job that needed to be done. Yeah. Fuck all of that. I mean, yeah, I get it, but... I wouldn't go as far as fucking killing somebody over it. Hell no. But like I said, he said that he wasn't trying to hurt somebody. Yeah. He could say he wasn't trying I to. Know. And even if he wasn't, like, he still did, so. Oh, I know. He's forever in the wrong for that. They all are. 
Yeah, I understand they all are. But yeah. that's it on that one. Interesting. It's not one of my wild ride fucking true crime cases I normally do when I no. actually decide to do one of them. Mm-mm. This might be time for me to do another one of those, huh? Yeah. What you gonna do? Don't know yet. Huh. But what's next? gonna be next week's episode after this one. It's a very special one. Our one-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. Yay! Yeah. It would actually not be on the actual date, if I remember correctly. It was the 28th, I think. Yeah, because you released that first episode early because it was, what, International Podcasters yeah, Day. Yeah, like, we had the episode, like, a week, done a week early, and then I happened to notice it was National Podcasters Day, and I said, fuck it, I'm doing it today. Yeah, yeah. Can't believe it. We've almost been doing this for a year already. I know, that's crazy. Yay to us. Yeah. But well, yay to us next next time. Yep, and probably bring out, you know, giving to give you guys a review of places that have been listening to us and how many people are listening to us and following and all that good stuff. I'm sure somebody's curious to know. Yeah. Because on our source feed map, we get this very super inaccurate map and how inaccurate this map is, it'll show downloads happening in the middle of a fucking lake. Yeah. So we can't really see where y'all are, but it shows these little dots on this map to where downloads happen and there's like interesting locations of where they show up at and I mean, I still even to almost a year later, I still get excited when a new dot shows up internationally. Yeah, those are because you're like, what the hell are they listening to to find right. us? Right. Yeah, especially like for example, we have one in like Japan, and like which one is it? We haven't covered yeah. anything in that area or no. anything like. And we've had one in Istanbul, which is interesting. It's like again, what, <laughs> what did they look for? No, it might be the ice cream one. If you think about it. I don't know. But anyhow, there's a couple of that's on there like, yeah. We'll I'm get sure. into all that next week. I'm sure they're just scammers, but yeah. Doesn't mean they're <laughs> a scammer. Other than the fact that I got DMs for one saying, hello, good sir, are you trying to promote your podcast? No, I'm not. <laughs> you're not stealing <laughs> okay, my content. Maybe that one is. <laughs> you're not stealing my content, I know better. But anyhow. Yeah. Before we get into this, we're going to save all that fun shit for next week for yeah. y'all. So... I think it's time we close the Emporium up for today, sir. What do you think? I agree. So until next time. Remember to creep it real. Okay, bye. Bye. Please check out our website at macabreemporiumpodcast.com. Join our Facebook group by searching Macabre Emporium. Like and subscribe on YouTube at Macabre Emporium Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre Emporium. And if you have any stories of the paranormal, your local true crime, or weird history that you would want us to look into and possibly do an episode on, email us at macabreemporiumpod at gmail.com. Remember to follow, rate, like, review, and share whenever and wherever you can and help us grow our little baby podcast.